I'm so tired I haven't slept a wing I'm so tired My mind is on the blink I wonder should I call you And get myself a drink No, no, no No, lay off the booze, boy Cause I'm so tired I don't know what to do, don't know what to do I'm so tired My mind is set on you I wonder should I do I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Craig Bartak. The Beatles. Naked. We were very possessive of each other, you know. The four of us had been through a lot together and we were very close most of the time. We weren't close all the time. And it went round, you know, I'd be close with John, I'd be close with George, I'd be close with Paul, they'd be close, we, John and I, and George would be close, Paul, John and George would be, you know. It went round in a lot of circles. But most of the time, four of us were very close. And I don't know, I thought we were, we were very possessive of each other in a way. You know, not like, you know, a mother's son thing, you know, but just with ourselves and um, we didn't like strangers coming in too much and the wives and the girlfriends never came to the studio that was where we were together Be and I think that's why we worked so well because there was just the four of us and there was no outside influence unless we brought it in like you know someone to come down and play on it or make it flash past for an hour or so because he's had nothing to do or whatever you know those things but basically it was just the four of us recording and it was intense you know and dramatic and we we're trying to get the record done the best we could we do a one track for a week you know it takes a week to do one track just the backing track sometimes uh, George was getting a lot of independence for himself in those days he was writing more he wanted things to go his way where when we first started they basically went John and Paul's way you know because they were the writers and they'd say you know this is the song we I would play as creatively as I could and they were taking you do this but sometimes I'd have three people telling me how to do it and the, I'd play it the only way I could and it seemed to work you know because the three frustrated drummers I used to have in my band or in the band because they all wanted to play drums and I couldn't play guitar so it didn't matter um, and I think that really helped me play in a way because they all and I kept screaming there's two drummers you know they're saying play this like on that track I'm saying for Christ's sake there's two drums there they could never hear that you know they just there's some drum thing going on and they, so you'd have to have four arms to do half of the stuff they wanted me to do so I would do it however I could uh, anyway back to George and the other reason George was finding his independence and he wouldn't be dominated as much by Paul as he was because uh, Paul would in the end wanted to like point out the solo to George and George was saying, well I'm a guitarist I'll play the solo and he always did you know um, 
you know, he always played fine solos for what the, our band was, you know? Like, I played for what our band was. John's the greatest rhythm guitarist still. And he plays lead in a crazy sort of way. Um, and I think that was another factor, because George left with a big row with Paul, um, because Paul, like, wanted to point out how to play, because it was his song, you see. I mean, he had sort of a right, but no right at all to do that, you know? To say, I wrote the song. It got a bit like, I wrote the song, I want it this way. Where before it was, I want the song, give me what you can give me, you know? Which, that's how it was earlier on, so... And also, you know, well, we were all married by then, you know, the family, and 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 everyone wanted to do different things, and I wanted to be in movies and stuff. I don't know. And, you know, as I say, with George writing a lot, so how many songs is he going to get? And then I started writing. I used to have one song, you know, then... I wrote two, I would have liked two on, but it would have been a battle, you know, to get two of mine on, then you because they, it doesn't matter what I've written today, I still haven't topped Lennon and McCartney. They wrote some fine, fine songs, fine songs, not just because it was, I was in the band and I was with them, they have written some incredible things, you know. We'd been together so long, we were living our own lives, you know. I think that, I couldn't put my finger on one thing while we broke up. It was time, and we were spreading out, you know. Well, they were spreading out more than I was. I would have stayed with the band. All right, so I'm with guitarist, musician, producer, composer Craig Bartok. We were talking on, well, via text and over the phone and stuff about Get Back. Oh, yeah. And I know that when we first spoke, you had, you know, a certain sort of take on things and an emotional response to it as well that started to evolve I think when you began to sort of repeat view and in my case, I've got to tell you, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wasn't in the same place as you were going to discuss this, but I think I've moved more towards where you were at. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Looking at it, you know, there's like, there's two different brains that are going on. There's the, there's the, the, the nerd brain that's picking apart all these great things we were given, like hearing, like, like hearing the tidbits of, songs that are you know that we never thought were part of the Beatles catalog just like some stuff that would end up on their solo stuff and we you know you guys have talked about that but you know I saw a an overview an overview of the whole project itself and it's like I saw a band that basically had reached the top of where they needed to go and it was sad because they by breaching the top they had they they couldn't move on to the next thing and they kept thinking that get back you know they didn't want to repeat the white album and do and repeat those songs but really you know you think about the white album and you think about the progression that from from you know uh rubber soul to revolver to uh sergeant peppers and magical mystery tour and all those songs and then getting to the white album it's like where as a creative spirit, as, as a creative group, where do they actually go yeah. from that point? Yeah, I mean, they could go, they could strip down and they could do that, but but they set up a scenario that was so uninspiring that it was almost destined to fail just by things that, in hindsight, that, that we could have looked at and, or they could have looked at and said, you know, maybe... 
this, uh, it would have been better this way or that way, but just the overall global view of things, seeing them just really made me sad because even though there's, it's filled with happiness and there's, it's filled with a lot of love because there's a lot of, there's a lot of a friendship and, and the, the, the way they, you know, that's the way a true band is. I mean, it's almost like you're four or five, you know, soldiers going to war together and you're in the foxholes together. And, and that's, that's a feeling that is very hard to explain. You know, maybe if people have been on a sports team or something like that, or, or, but, but that feeling of just knowing that you've got, you know, you've got three wingmen that always have your back. And, and that, that showed through, but just what they were trying to do in spirit creatively and watching how hard it was for them to push the boulder up the hill was, um, was saddening to me. It, it actually made me very, very sad because they just, they set themselves up for, 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 well, for well they did in several regards, didn't they? They've got George who doesn't want to perform live. So you've got an issue right there. Right. He's balking at all these different suggestions. And you've got also the pressure of coming up with new material that they're not going to be overdubbing. So they've got to get their chops together here to be able to do complete takes. They've got this ridiculous deadline because of Ringo's commitment to, you know, film The Magic Christian. Right. And the White Album is at number one in the charts at this point. And it's like normally yeah. any artist would be just performing songs from that, but not the Beatles. They want to move on, yeah. which is admirable. But that's also the issue, isn't it? That they feel like they're treading water at this point. They want to move on. Lennon's someone who always wants to move on. They all do. And they feel like they're just going in yeah. circles now. And added to that is that there's a third force in the Beatles who's been suppressed for quite some time, you know, in the composer department. Yes. And so now it's not just John and Paul right. who have to get it together and everyone else will fall in line, but you've got George pushing. And so they can never get on the same page. Very, very true. One thing I wanted to say about like what you just mentioned about them looking at the White Album as kind of been there, done that and wanting to move on. Well, if they would have actually performed the White Album and parts of the White Album, that wouldn't have been going back because they haven't performed in years. And, and touring and live performance actually got to the point where it was starting to catch up to them. They're the, as, as Michael Lindsay Hogg said, you're the freaking Beatles. You know, they could have had monitors. They could have had musicians on the side. They could have had a, you know, a horn player or a small horn section or a small string section. They could have done all that. So technically... It wasn't a step backwards to do these things. It would have been a step forward because it would have given the public and the Beatles what they had craved so much. You know, unfortunately, the documentary really shows how much really not playing live for all that yeah. time had hurt them. And, um, you know, just a, a lot of things. But um, getting back to this, like, sort of like my scenario, if I was going to write like a get back movie and it was and, and to think about what it would be, it would be, first of all, obviously, we're all we're all completely entranced by the songwriting process. It would have been so great just to see John and Paul sitting together like the olden days, facing each other, writing 
Um, not with Ringo sitting around being patient, not with George kind of like just sitting around going, well, what am I going to do? Um, you know, I just got back from hanging out with the band and I saw how free and cool everything is and everything's uptight here. Just just have the Lennon-McCartney team just sitting and writing these songs. And that would be one part of the documentary of just like being a fly on the wall and watching them, the magic they have and the, the passion they have for it coming back as opposed to being in Twickenham with all these distractions. Okay, so they write the songs, George writes his songs. Now imagine, it instead of going to Twickenham or going to Apple Studios, imagine them booking the Cavern for a oh, couple yeah. of weeks. Which, now, is t- now, which is mentioned in the movie. Right, right. Yeah. Now, they're always, they're constantly complaining about the sound. And... Now, they played the cavern a gazillion times. They knew the sound. They knew how great it was. They knew how inspiring. And I can't tell you how important. Well, you know, you're, you're a musician as well, Richard. We know that the sound has an awful lot to do with the, the creativity and, and the passion. If, right. if you're just getting nothing back when you play a guitar, you know, you can't really, like, play a guitar really soft without any distortion and expect to write a rock song. I mean, you know, you got to crank up the amplifier and you got to get the yeah. tone because that is partially what inspires you. So, so they're in Twickenham, which is probably the worst choice. If they would have gone, if they would have gone to the cavern, they know that sound they, it would have, that would have been getting back yeah. now, truly getting back to where they were, you know, to back to being a rock band and, 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 and then, you know, and then rehearsing the songs like on the stage, you know, maybe sitting down at first, but then actually standing up and, and, and doing mock performances so that they feel like they, they don't get the feeling like they're just like sitting in a circle staring at each other. That, that's with, something with, actually I wanted to ask you. Um, yeah. You know, for me, when I sing, it's always easier to sing standing up. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to see them at Apple when we're starting to hear the tracks that end up on the album. Right. And so we see the actual performance. And in my head, they're, they're going to be standing up like the photos we see of them at EMI. Yeah, and right. It's like they're all sitting down. It's like they're just lounging around and there's Don't Let Me Down. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I've I've heard the same thing that you know the whole diaphragm thing and you can get more air yeah. when you're standing up and all yeah. that. Um, personally, like... Um, Everything I've ever sung in the studio, I've sat down because I'm in front of my computer and I can punch in and punch out and engineer myself. And I don't necessarily notice a difference. But yeah, at that point with them, with, with especially with uh, with John, I think that it's um, it's more of a psychological thing. When you stand up, it's like it's you got your guitar hanging down, and it feels it feels more like okay, now I'm getting to work. And that type of thing. So I was going to say with uh, this scenario, okay, so if they went to the cavern or even even if they went to Abbey Road, I mean, if they went to studio number two at EMI, they know that sound and they can get a great, I mean, think about, I saw her standing there and this, you know, I think about the great rock sounds they could, they could have gotten just by going, you know, to Abbey Road, they could have, they, they would have had all the mics they needed. They would have had all the room they needed. It just would have been great. Now, let's take it to the, the third part, which we did the songwriting and the rehearsing. Now, the third part, just imagine if they would have done it at the Hammersmith Odeon or, or at, yeah. the, um, at the, you know, Royal Albert Hall. And Royal they would Albert have, Hall. 
Yeah. yeah and, and they would have done, and they would have done like Revolution and, and Hey Jude and Your Blues and Helter Skelter. And Paul would have came out and sang Blackbird. And um, they could have even done some of their earlier stuff that they wouldn't, like Taxman and that type of stuff. I mean, this, these are the kind of songs. I mean, this is the freaking Beatles, right? At, exactly. Gone past the White Album. They've got that whole catalog. Yeah, abso- absolutely. And, and these are all songs that they've never performed before. And and so that's not a step back. That's a step forward. And um, it, it just would have been an amazing package. But But once again... The way they did things, they did things at Twickenham. Horrible sound, horrible sound, all facing each other. Um, they go to the Apple Studios, and and I'm watching George trying to play an acoustic guitar, and I'm just looking at him, just thinking, guys, why aren't you wearing headphones? The whole time they're complaining that they can't hear each other. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a live room with an acoustic guitar trying to play a song and and john uh, george saying well i don't even know what chords i'm playing because i can't hear myself well you can't hear yourself because everybody when they record in a studio they they wear headphones and um maybe they didn't want to wear headphones because it didn't look right it didn't look like them kind of being in a room together but at that point when they got to abbey road they really kind of should have been wearing headphones. Because yeah, because the footage of them in 68 at Trident Studios, they're working right. on Hey Jude. I, I yeah. remember John's wearing cans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and Hey Bulldog, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and they and they sing together on one mic, and 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 but they but they just have one one um, one headphone in, um, and the other one just hanging down, and uh, you know. But that's the way things would have been done. But also, let's look at the other ways that they kind of shot themselves in the foot creatively. And you and I have talked about this in the past, Richard. You know, I'm not a big fan of of Fender amplifiers when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to rock and roll. Fender yeah. ampli- to me, when I see somebody with a Fender guitar and a Fender amplifier, I run because it's going to be, <laughs> unless you're playing, I get around by the Beach Boys, you know, or you're, you're playing, you're playing that, that era of music. It's going to be very little thin and tinny yeah. sounding and, and George makes it work. And, and John with his casino, it's, he has P90s on that. It's naturally more of a more mellow sort of swampy sounding guitar and that's the that's the guitar sound that john seemed to prefer i mean when you break down happiness is a warm gun it's actually quite a simple song when you hear what john's only playing like three chords in it but when you hear it that's the sound is that that epiphone casino and um it's it, it became their sound of choice what about george's sound he goes through a leslie as well yeah, well, I, I'm I'm kind of on the camp with you guys with the Leslie thing. It's like, <laughs> you know, it was it was the big thing at the moment, and and it's understandable for George to do it because I mean Clapton had just done it on Badge in the Breaking Badge, and and a lot of people were like going through like a guitar through a Leslie and all that. Once again, the Beatles were always great about taking something and using it, abusing it, then throwing it away. You know, George may have overstepped the the Leslie thing at that point. But once again, they should have had other amplifiers and other ways to set up. You know, and it's like I look at Ringo's drums and I say, Ringo, take those tea towels off the drum. Take <laughs> yeah. those tea towels off the drums and listen to what 
listen to the, the type of drum sound that Keith Moon and other drummers in that era, they were much more live sounding. Yeah. Listen to Jimi Hendrix's experience. The the T-Tals became Ringo, Ringo's second signature sound, his first signature sound. Ringo always, the drums were always tuned brilliantly. I mean, I still listen to the drums in Penny Lane and I go, holy shit. I mean, mm-hmm. listen to that kick and snare drum. I mean, it's it's contemporary as can possibly be. And the T-Tals worked, but, but how are you going to get a real rock sound when you're just, you, your drums are so muted, you got a couple of really clean Fender amplifiers. You know, Paul had the right idea going back to the Hofner because the Hofner is a very imperfect instrument. I mean, I should know, I've got four of them. Um, but um, at least Paul was like saying, okay, I want to get back to the way things kind of sounded. You know, if they would have like, I, it, I, it makes me think of the scene where George quit and and it's just the three of them. And John turns up his amplifier for the first yeah. time. Yeah. And you listen to that and you go, okay, that right there. Now there's there's Nirvana. That's that's Kurt Cobain. That's attitude. And and I would have loved to have he- heard much more of that. I would have loved to have heard the sounds that they got in Your Blues or the sounds they got in Helter Skelter. You know, where are those guitar tones? Where are the, you know, where's the guitar tones that are like, that we know, like back in the USSR, they're clean, but they're also distorted at the same time. Those guitar tones are missing from this. All we have is we have George playing his, his, his Telecaster, mostly through a Fender amplifier, very bright and very, very much in the, uh, the band sound um and we have john playing his sort of swampy casino and ringo with very very tight sounding drums just imagine if they would have went back to or or or, or, i mean they probably would have never wanted to go back to vox ac30s or ac50s but but they could have gone to marshall's or they could have gone to any type of amplifier or even use you know a vox tone bender or something like that they could have done it and the other thing too is just the whole twickenham thing and and um when they're um at abbey road just how they're facing each other and it's like they're they're set up for playing soft and never really opening up they're facing right. each other and they're 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 running through songs and it really doesn't feel like they open up technically until they get up on the roof you know, and then they, you know, there's there's some times during um, Abbey Road where they do open up a bit their amplifiers, and they, they kind of they they kind of get a little bit of a attitude with them. But if you're going to get back as a rock band, and you want to be, you want to get rid of all the George Martin's technical crap, you know, that or whatever the comment that John made, mm-hmm. you definitely want to be able to. To, to rock. I mean, listen to like the Washington DC concert after the Ed Sullivan show. Listen to how those those AC fifty sound when they're cranked up. Or listen to some other guy. You know, so by going forward, in some ways, you're going backwards. You know, by mm-hmm. going forwards and going, oh, these beautiful fender amplifiers that were just provided for us, it's counterintuitive to what they wanted to achieve ultimately sonically.
Just a minute, boys. What? <laughs> what was it doing? So which? Because I'm in love. Which oh, one are we doing? Which one are we doing? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Save the last dance for me. <laughs> you can dance every dance with a guy. Time it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember permit. your waltz. Yeah. You're three four, and I'm five six. <laughs> when you say about them, you know, sitting in a circle facing each other, one thing we notice. I mean, obviously in a band, there's supposed to be eye contact. We know about that. Yeah. But it was to me, it was notable how much they really they never take their eyes off each other. Especially yeah. John and Paul. You know, if John looks down at his guitar for a second. <laughs> He'll just look straight back at Paul. They never looked away. They were just looking at each other the whole time. Absolutely. You know, and that was an interesting observation because yeah, um, just watching the connection between John and Paul and how close they were, it just like it explains so much as to how they could in the early songs sing in unison and make it like a, and I want to hold your hand or thank you girl or a number of other songs and basically have the exact same inflections almost like it's double tracked mm-hmm. and when one when John started to take the piss out of a song Paul would be right there and yeah. vice versa the connection between them was just so beautiful to see and and I came to this conclusion that there's a scene where Paul is talking to John about playing the bass and he's saying well you know you're playing bump bump play bump and you know instead of just saying to John well just switch chords when I switch chords just yeah. play hold notes you know and then I realized that the way they're talking to each other is like they're still 14 years old and just learning how to play like right. like they're like they're in a garage band. It's it's that type of thing where they have Beatles speak and it it's like their own musical language to communicate with each other. It's so non-technical but musical and so amazing. But then you think, well how many musicians did they actually really play with before and and during the Beatles? Very few. So yeah. obviously they're going to talk to each other that way. You know, that's not the way George Martin would have talked to the <laughs> professional musicians that came into play, you right. know, or, or maybe they talked to Eric or the way Eric interpreted, the, you know, them for like Mama Guitar Gently Weeps. But the way they talk to each other, they are still in, you know, at Paul's house, you know, sitting there writing, she loves you face to face with each other. That's that's a direct connection to that era and um, you can just see that the, the arc hasn't changed. And they're still, it works for them and it works so well that um, they, 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 they don't want to give it up. And why should they? 
I love the fact that in the lyrics book that was recently published, Paul was saying that, you know, the fact that he's left-handed, John's right-handed. I mean, we always know, you know, the whole thing about well, that enabled them to stand shoulder to shoulder at the mic when they're on stage. But right. I love the fact that he said in the book that also when they were composing like that, looking at each other, he said, I'm looking at my mirror image. Yes. The whole Get Back documentary bears that out. I yes. mean, they, they really are looking at each other as mirror images. I mean, yeah. I, I just, you see it in their eyes. And the love for each other is, you know, there there's a lot of takeaways from, you know, the big picture from this documentary. There's a lot of takeaways of just human nature. I mean, yeah, we can get into yeah. the weeds about the nitpicking about, you know, oh, we didn't realize that this was that and this is that, you know, but I look at it like, wow, okay, here's two brothers who loved each other so much. It's a bit sad because you want a different ending to the movie where they grow old together and can get to the point where they get past the Beatles and they're just these two older individuals looking at each other and reflecting on their life. You know, this documentary really shows what giving up playing life costs them, you know, and you want John to, to live. So you want them to get past that so that they can, they can, you know, not be the Beatles, not be the Beatles and be two great friends who really love each other and, and maybe went apart through the seventies and eighties and maybe even the nineties, but, but find some way to, to just, just sit in a room together and just laugh and, and enjoy each other's company because they're, those connections come come around so rare. I mean, it's it's you know it's it's Romeo and Juliet. It's yeah. it's you know it's the it's the it's the love of the ages when you yeah. see them together. And yeah. it's you, you don't the, the the whole story has a has a sad ending. You know, but 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 interspersed in that, I mean, there's an enormous amount of joy. When I say earlier, I said the sadness, I mean, that's that's obviously interspersed with the, the sheer amount of joy in the actual documentary. And, um, you know, another couple things uh, I'm noticing, it was that um, as I got older, I started liking, and we've talked about this in the past too, Richard, I started liking let it be an Abbey Road less and less. You know, I started noticing that I almost never played Let It Be, and Abbey Road I like, but I played less and less. I mean, not nearly as much as the White Album or Revolve right. or anything anything like White Album and before. And I never really understood why until I watched this documentary and I realized that exactly what I said, it's like they had nowhere to go except sideways at that point. Yeah. So yeah. I think Let It Be was a sort of a failed attempt at trying to be a live rock band. And Abbey Road, as brilliant as it is, it's sort of a, more of a branch off of the tree going sideways as opposed to climbing straight up. It's a br brilliantly recorded album, but... but is it an it, it is probably the only really modern sounding album because they yeah. they had they had a first modern you know a, a proper modern desk and everything uh, and that, and that the Moog synthesizer on it exact well. exactly but but are they are they the Beatles where you're just going oh my god this is a quantum leap this is um it's it's 
a leap in the sense that it's always a leap because we're you know we're talking about the Beatles here, but it's 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 more of a side limb of a branch growing up as opposed to the trunk of the tree growing up and always constantly improving upon itself, mm-hmm. and and I guess. I guess instinctively, as you know, as I got older, I started to realize that Abbey Road does, you know, it, it's great. There's great songs. Um, George obviously comes into his own, but it does it's, feel like a lot of songs that are like, like you know, that are patched together, and it works because it's like once again, it's the Beatles because it works. But but is it like I mean their last? In my opinion, their last really great hurrah of of surprising us and and really just just going holy. I mean, now we got to catch up to the Beatles, you know, and nobody's going to catch up to them. Was the White Album? Yeah, going back to the beginning of this conversation that I referred to that you and I differed on was that it actually didn't make me sad. I mean, I'm sad watching, you know, that we've no longer got John and George or Mal and things like that. But the overall feeling actually was very comforting for me. For me, it was, you know, the fact that in January they're discussing divorce and they seem Mm -hmm. quite comfortable with that. Right. You know, they, as George said, by the time of Abbey Road, we knew the game was up. And for them, it was. They weren't the stones. They couldn't muscle their way through it. You know, this was them. Who knows what would have happened if John had lived. But yeah. but I don't feel sad so much because to me, it's like, OK, they were accepting of it. Yeah. It made yeah. it more comfortable for me. It, it put me more at peace, you know, it, rather than, oh, God, it was so stupid because of Klein and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, yeah. no, even musically, like you said, they were just going sideways. They, at the very least, they needed time away from each other. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and it goes in the face of, against the face of everything we've been told about that era. So, so we do watch it and we do feel joy and happiness just for the fact it's just kind of going, whew. <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay, they're not screaming at each other and they're not throwing stuff. You know, they're smiling right. and they're laughing and they got their arms around each other. But the sad part is, for me is the creative person inside of me seeing them trying to climb a hill that is almost near to impossible for for my icons and the people that I consider to be the Mozarts of our era. And that's the part. Um, it's not necessarily the documentary. Um, I felt wonderful about it. And, um, you know, the other thing um, I was going to say is George, it's it's very interesting to, to watch George in this documentary. In in some ways, he feels, in he feels like, at a lot of times he's the most guarded, and um, and it made me think that that like maybe that's one of the reasons that it took him longer to become a good songwriter like John and Paul. I mean, John knew early on, like, if I spill my guts out in a song, you've got to hide your love away, help. You know, this is what true artists do. That You know, artists are in touch with their feelings and they, they pour it out. And, and I mean, and Paul, obviously, you know, we've had this conversation. But that was five or six years in, right? John's been writing yeah. since, like, what, 59 or whatever, 58, 59. So exactly. we're talking, and he's had Paul as his sounding board. George Absolutely. is on his own. And yeah. and if we sort of say, well, he started writing sort of 63, 62, 63. So 68, that's five years in for him. And yeah. he's coming into his own like they did. Yeah. But if, if 
George finally realized, like with like all things must pass and a lot of things, that that he's really really saying the things that are important. He's really spill, spilling out his his emotions, and um, and and, and it it came very naturally to John, and it didn't come as naturally to George until later on. I think that and and in defense of George. You know, when you've got John and Paul, you're just you are going to write a song, and and you're going to think you're going to think, well, what are they going to think of it, and mm. how do you like this one? So it there is a matter of of trying to please them as opposed to pleasing yourself. John was always trying. He got to the point early where he was trying to please himself as a songwriter. Paul was, you know, I want to do this. You know, Paul was like a, you know, a pinball, like in a, in a pinball machine. It's like, oh, I want to do, uh, I want to do honey pie. I want to do, why don't we do it in the road? I want to do helter skelter. I want to, you know, and, and we all know the motivations behind these songs. I mean, Paul had all these Think these these things he had to get out, you know these these show tunes and and these 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 catchy songs and and so it's a whole different thing. But George is, yeah, in a lot of ways he was the odd man out, and I and I feel for him. And that one, the one comment when he makes he says something like, um, what he he says, you know, you really need an Eric Clapton, mm-hmm. you know, as a guitar player. I mean, it was it's heartbreaking to hear him say that. Yeah, I mean, because we've all been in that position. It's like, wow. I mean, even Paul says, you know, sometimes it's like, sometimes I get this feeling like, like, the, you know, I, I'm I'm putting people on and the jig is up, and am I really that good, yeah. you know? And 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 you can just, I mean, George's just laying it out there. It's like you, you know, you really need an Eric. You don't need a George. And I mean, at least they come back and say, no, we need a we need a George Harrison. But yeah. him to say that is was was so was so sad to me well because Um, the thing is that paul comes into the studio with his songs he knows all the parts and he's got about 20 songs right um but he also feels that he knows all the parts on everyone else's songs so i mean you speak so you've got this super talented guy but as john says in that lunchtime meeting you know you're right a lot of the time and sometimes you're not right exactly So, so talk to me yourself as a musician seeing both Paul's perspective on this or Paul and John's and George's because you've got this, you know, you can see both sides of it. You can see you've got this incredibly talented guy in, in Paul, you know, basically like a pop music genius, yeah. right? you know, and he has, he's got all these ideas. He knows how he wants it arranged like Brian Wilson, but then right. you've got George who's coming to his own as a musician you know, yeah. so so speak to both those parts for me, and where do you come down? And I mean, obviously you're the guitarist, but where do you come down on this? Yeah, well, it's you know something that's always a very very tough call. Um, that's probably in a band and in a recording situation. That's probably one of the most difficult places to be, unless you're a band that like you 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 go into the studio and you kind of co-write everything together, and you're a bunch of muso guys like yes or something like that um but in this case you know paul being a decent guitar player and 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 wanting to do it it's it's understandable and i guess my my really what i'm trying to say is is everything that went down is how it should have went down it's the only way it could have went down with with george walking off and being frustrated because george in his own right is really a great guitar player and i mean the the things he could come up with and 
you think about just like how he was just thrown a bone very, very quickly and the great riffs and things he came up with and was never really accredited to. So, so it's a really tough place for a band to be. It's a tough place for a producer to be. I mean, in sense, in a sense, Paul's a producer. You know, what do you say? It's like, well, you're not good enough for this, or I want to try playing guitar on my song. It's going to ruffle feathers, and um, eventually, it's going to get, it's going to wear the shine down, and people are going to get jaded, and it's going to cause a lot of friction, which is exactly what it did. Um, there is no right or wrong. It's just a very delicate situation. And I thought Paul did a pretty good job of handling it. I thought Paul was much more diplomatic in this documentary than, than we were led to believe. Uh, I agree. I mean, I agree. Like Paul comes off, Paul comes off to be very, very diplomatic. And I mean, you know, and speaking of Paul and this documentary, I mean, you know, they, it's. I mean, Peter Jackson did such an amazing job. He gave. He really did give us more than a documentary. He gave right. us a story of love, of triumph, of sadness. It really has a um, it has an arc to it and a story that Michael Lindsay Hogg could only have dreamed of giving. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he didn't have permission to do what 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 peter jackson did but that scene in the second this uh, part two at the beginning where george quits and and the camera angle is left on paul and oh, paul's yeah. eyes are tearing up and you can see that he's kind of sucking on the tip of his thumb and and then they keep going back to ringo and oh my god what in, in any movie that would be such a heart-wrenching scene and you know and paul says and then there were two and and there's silence there's silence and they, and, and they keep the camera, the camera on him i love the fact that they zoom in on him you know exactly. in other words they recognize the moment as well right what was right. going on here yeah i i no, agree i mean having a camera in your face the at the moment that somebody you get the phone call that one of your parents has passed away or your loved one is in the hospital or, and been in a car wreck that 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 feeling of being out of body and just like oh my god it's like i i can't even process this is is what you're seeing in their faces and it's so brilliant because you know they're they, we forget that they're they're i mean they're gods to us but but they're real people you know and i think i was mentioning to you it's like seeing them in 4k and so young their 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 complexion and they they look so young and it's so heartwarming and, and and wonderful to see them in this era you know and and we think of them as like wow you know but they're they're 27 i know i you know, know. they're they're 27 and 28 you know they're kids still yeah. And, yeah. and 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 yet they but but they're not kids because they went through they went through a world war 2 yeah. they you know they went you know as as an 18 year old recruit and then you come back and you come back from Iwo Jima and you come back from you come back from the invasion of Normandy and France and you come back and you're not an 18, 19, right. you're 20 year old anymore. You're right. 22 years old. You've seen a life that no one else can see that you can't necessarily explain to anybody. Mm-hmm. And and um, this is what we're seeing here. We're seeing these guys who have been through a war together. Yeah. Um, 
it, it's it's really fascinating. And you know, like just as a guitar player and a musician, just the listening to. I mean, I, Peter Jackson did a really great job of getting the vocals and the little noodling to the point where you could hear it, you know, because watching John and it, it gave me a whole another level of appreciation to John as a guitar player. I mean, I always was blown away by like his solo in Honey Pie or his bass playing in Helter Skelter or back in the USSR. But when he, like Paul says something, John is like, you know, it's hard to believe like he was just playing banjo chords a few years before yes, that. Yes. When you watched the positions he's playing on the neck and 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 yes, he may not be a shredder by modern terms, but I don't give a shit about that because that never meant anything to me. I mean, I would rather listen to somebody who's got feeling and passion in their yeah. playing over somebody who can play you know, precision at yeah. any time. But yeah. you watch John and you watch where he's playing on the neck and you watch how even when he's playing, he's goofing around and he's just having fun. There's something very knowing about his playing that it's like, it's hard to believe that that he hasn't been playing guitar all that long. And right. I'm sure as, you know, and you hear George in the background noodling and you're going, I'm saying to myself, that's a pretty complicated riff. It's not in any Beatles song, but I know it's George back there playing. It's like, he's, wow, he's playing something really complicated back there. And um, and, and I think every good, every musician I talked to was so blown away by Paul strumming his Hofner. Uh, that was just <laughs> unbelievable. Yes. Like, like how Paul could, he could basically, instead of saying, well, I'm just going to pick up a guitar and write this song. So he takes his Hofner and he treats it like a rhythm guitar. Yeah. And he starts playing octaves and he's strumming his guitar like on Get Back and a lot of these songs and Two of Us. And so so he has Two of Us, fuller. right? Because they'd done yeah. they'd done the fast version of Two of Us, I think the previous right. day. So he's come in with that in his head most likely. hear him use a bass guitar as a rhythm guitar is <laughs> is a revelation it's like 
oh my God, it's like I've never seen a bass player do that before. And it makes sense because Paul being a guitar player first and everything, it just makes sense that that's the way he would do it. But seeing him actually strumming it, and I know that there's times in the past where Paul as a musician, as a bass player, plays chords on the bass, which is now you could you rarely find a bass player that would ever do that. I mean, once in a while you find a bass player who will play two notes, you know, and he'll play like a bass, a root, and he'll play like a, a third and octave above, like um, Take a Walk on the Wild Side, that type yeah. of song. Um, but you never see somebody just like taking a one, one, five, eight, you know, three strings on a bass guitar and strumming it like, like Paul used to. And it's it's a revelation to see how he actually used that to his advantage to write with. Well, it's just unbelievable. Also, by the time John gets in, so we've got the time scale there. By the time John gets in, he's got the melody of the song. He's even got the chorus. Yeah. You know, I mean, the speed of that. I was speaking to a musician recently. said, well, yeah, I've written songs that fast. I said, get back. Yeah. You know, it's like he just wrote a classic there in front of our eyes. Yeah, just... but, but but there's there's two points to that because I also understand your friend's point mm. because it's the Beatles and it's a classic. But if it hadn't been the Beatles, it wouldn't have been a classic. So so we are tainted by our bias. Mm. Like it's oftentimes we've had this conversation before, which is interesting conversation, Richard, about like the alternate takes, like the alternate take of I saw her standing there. Yeah. Would we have liked that one better than the take that they used? Because we would have grown up with it. Right. So we have to remember, I mean, I'm looking at things through rose-colored glasses these days anyways, because I have rose-colored <laughs> glasses. It's like the reverb, laden capital releases that you grew up with, and so some of those you prefer. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We're watching our idols, and we're watching them just reaching the peak. They had just reached the peak, in my opinion, with the White Album. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's it's one of the saddest stories, and this isn't necessarily a Beatles story, but this is another thing that the, the documentary brings out, is how sad it is to see creative people we admire peak. You know, Brian Wilson, Orson mm. Welles. Yes. Um, you know, and it's like there's a shelf life to everything. And, yep. and, and, and we could possibly be seeing the shelf life to the Beatles here. Yeah. And and we could be possibly be seeing the pinnacle and and them with nowhere else to go. Um, you know, they can't go back and they can't be psychedelic. They can't go back and they can't just be folk. They've done everything. They've they've had harpsichord, they've had you know, they've they they've had the Mellotron, they've had they've Sitars. had all these things. Sitars, they've had yeah. all the you know, they've had horn sections, they've had they've had string sections, they've had orchestras. So where do they go? Yes, so they go back to getting back to being a rock band, but what do they do it with? With fender amps and tea towels and not cranked up and facing each other. An elite guitarist who doesn't want to be performing in front of audiences. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and it's yeah, it's interesting because I, 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 the second time I watched the documentary, I noticed how many times George was bitching about money. Oh yeah, and uh, and it's really, really funny. I mean, it's like he's the only one, and it's like 
they're the Beatles, you know, and it's just like to see somebody, somebody like George, like saying, well, do you know how much that's going to cost? Or they really should be paying for the eight track machine or, you know, we should be able to build, be, be able to build EMI for this. Or, you know, we can't, you know, you know, put people uh, uh, on uh, a cruise ship. M- and- meanwhile, they're bankrolling Magic Alex, who ever clearly they know who Magic Alex is, you know, when they yeah. get that, when they get that, was it two-sided bass guitar or something, you see yeah, their yeah. reaction, right? And yet they'll, they'll spend money on that. Yeah. Yeah, a bass guitar that's made out of the same material that they made Gumby out of. <laughs> Talking of bass guitars, yeah. I can't figure out how Paul, who's so picky, especially with his songs, yeah. allows John to play bass on his songs and play it so badly. He's all over the place. Yeah, this is an interesting... The, the, if we just break apart the bass in general during this get back, first of all, Paul had a much better sounding... He had much better sounding basses than the Hofner. And I love the fact that even Paul doesn't know how the three switches on the Hofner work. <laughs> I've, Like I said, I've got four of them. I've got two of them sitting right here next to me. I have a vintage 63, which is the serial number that's only a few serial numbers off of Paul's that I rarely use. And I can't figure out what those three buttons do. Mm. You know, so they're, they're looking at it going, well, Paul's like, I never really knew what these buttons did. And, and, I, and I love that. But, you know, and then the Rickenbacker is like in disrepair, which is like, excuse me, they're the Beatles. Send it out to get it repaired. And he, he you know, and he had a jazz bass at the time. Okay. And, um, and that Fender six-string bass is a very the one that you see George and and Paul and John playing, uh, uh, George and John playing is a very unique sounding bass. There's no bass that sounds like it. I mean, imagine a bass guitar with a vibrato right. bar on it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you would do that once, and the bass guitar would go go completely out of tune. Right. You know, like you can't even do that. You couldn't even do that with a Strat back in those days. I mean, as as Hendrix would have, you know, bared me out with that, bore me out. I mean, how many times did Hen- Hendrix do a nosedive with that? And he'd come back and the guitar would be completely out of tune when it's yeah. live performances. So that that bass is a very, very unique sounding bass. And, and thank God it is because... The sound on uh, that, if you when you listen to the isolated tracks of Helter Skelter or back in the USSR, you could, or even um, the the plunkiness of Rocky Raccoon, it's got a plunk and a and a bright a bright sort of a high end sort of a thud that no other bass guitar has, but it also has very very unique tuning issues. And you can hear that there's some serious tuning going on. Um, if you listen to the isolated tracks of Golden Slumbers, I believe it's either John or George playing bass because Paul's playing piano on Golden Slumbers. But if you listen to it, the low E is so flat. When The second time when he goes, once there was a way to get yeah. back homeward, once there was a way, bomb, 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 the G right there is so out of tune and then it's all the way out of tune to bum 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 but i treasure those moments i treasure the out of tuneness and i treasure the humanness of it that bass is a hard instrument to play and yeah paul probably under normal circumstances would have gone back and probably redid the bass and and redid it redid a proper bass um but i think that once again, it, it could be the love and respect 
he had for John and John playing it. Yeah, I mean, it's like the bass playing on the long and winding road is pretty, oh, pretty lame. And, and we, I, I, if George had been playing that, I think Paul would have been all over him. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but but, you know, something once again, it's not a very demanding bass part. And um, and certainly us growing up, the last thing we listened to for that song was the bass. You know, we didn't care about the bass on that song. Um, we cared about Paul's piano. We cared about the song. We cared about his vocal. We cared about like Phil Spector's string section and and the the the, the weird choir in the background. You know, I mean, the bass guitar was like you know, I mean, not even not many hi fi's could even hear the bass back in those days. As a composer, I mean, give me your assessment of Paul McCartney that we see and get back because they've just done the Y album. And so even if John's only got very few numbers, he's still got some new material as -hmm. well as some older material. George is on fire by his standards, right? Coming up with new stuff. Right. But it's like Paul, I mean, we end up hearing in the get back sessions all but three of the tracks on Abbey Road. It's, yeah. it's all there. And it's just like, oh, here's one I wrote last night. And here's another one I wrote last night. I mean, one of the ones that he wrote in the morning before he left for the studio. It's like, well, what time did he get up? Most likely not that early. I mean, what did he write this in? Five minutes? He's a machine. He, <laughs> he, is, he is God's gift to pop rock songwriting. He is an absolute machine that just cranks it out. But Paul... John and George, they're bringing in songs and you could not have a better insight as to their personalities at that time. I mean, Paul is just on fire. He's the Beatle that wants to please. He's the Beatle that wants to do show tunes. And he's the Beatle that wants to do acoustic numbers. John is begrudgingly, you know, jaded at this point. He's like, but he's still a genius, but he just doesn't have that drive in that that passion that Paul still has George is at a point where he's he's really trying to prove himself and you see that all playing out all in the eyes of hearing amazing songs just coming out um you know everything they do is just like incredible we hear like god songs like another day or something like that and it's just like oh my god it's like how can he have that like already and you know he's got he 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 does he just thinks in musical terms and there's no cloning no not at all because that's that's just how you know we see how they're wired we see how they're wired creatively just right in front of our eyes in these eight hours we see just that whole fascinating thing like that um but what's interesting is the concept of get back you know, they wanted to get back to their roots, so they find out that they can't do it. So they end up going back to Ab and do Abbey Road, which is a very slick album. And look at the first two sol- look at the first solo album that Paul and the first so- solo album that John come out comes yep. out with. Yep. Very rudimentary, very back. They ended up being able to do what yes. they couldn't do with the Beatles. And and invite and and on the other side of the coin, George comes out with probably the slickest album of all. All to, and probably yeah. one of the best solo Beatle albums of all time, if yeah. not the best, yeah. you know, produced and sonically just amazing. So they, they, it's funny how they ended up reversing everything. They yeah. ended up reversing their, their goals. Yes, I agree. I agree. Ringo, we always knew he was rock solid. 
Man, yes. we get to see it here, don't we? Wherever they go, he just follows them. He 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 yes. just goes with that. Amazing. Yeah. And and you know, and Ringo, yeah, you know, it's like we watch it and we go, we, we you know all the horrible things we heard about that era, but also you know the, their caricatures are right there in front of us. <laughs> Ringo is Ringo is the lovable Beetle. He is the happy-go-lucky Beetle. He's he hardly says anything. He's he's always smiling. You know, and you hear you hear Linda saying, "Oh, you know, we love Richie," and yeah. and and, yeah. and and you can just see it. He's just ready to go. He's he he he. It's like all. Oh, Old dependable Ringo on the drums. We know him, we love him, and he's always going to be there. And and nobody, no drummer can ever, to me, say that Ringo is a bad drummer. I will, at least not to my face, because I think Ringo is one of the, truly one of the greatest drummers of all time. You know, and and I think the Beatles are four of the greatest musicians of all time because it's not about the technical side of things it's right. all about the feel 100%. you know and 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 they knew and they were so in tune with each other so they not only did they have their own feel as individual musicians but they had a feel as the beatles which was like four powerful forces coming together that is just insane it it is like the four-headed monster yeah you know like they, they've been referred to as you know you can bear me out by this anybody all they need to do is listen to isolated tracks and and you can listen to an isolated you if you listen to the drums on rain you go that's ringo yeah or if you listen to something you say that's ringo the fact that how he I mean, the Beatles were masters at holding back. The Stones couldn't do it. Not I can't really honestly think of any other band other than the Beatles as musicians that could hold back like they they could and and make it work. I mean, the first thing a drummer will always want to do is go just give a really strong like a, a backbeat with his with his hat like Ringo used to do back in the early days with yeah. his swishing of his semi open hi hat. But when you think about how the songs like something where he's just kicks near and then like on Penny Lane for example, yeah. like like Penny Lane in the verses. Ringo is not playing his kick drum. He's coming in with his kick drum on Penny Lane is in my ears. It's like an in the dun 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 dun. It's just the snare drum and a hat. And then it's like when the the kick bump bump bump. Penny Lane is in my and that's yeah. where the the backbeat starts. Who in in that day and nowadays would have the guts to do something like that? Nobody, because everybody wants to be all out, you know, and the sparseness of come together, just how it can be so sparse and the guitar be slightly out of tune. And then Ringo in the last chorus going, instead of going, you know, like just the, he's on the tom-toms going, come together. And he's, and the last chorus, he's, it's, it's kick, snare, kick, snare, kick. I mean, he's, he's avoiding Every cliche you can possibly imagine. It's it's don't give all the candy to the kids. Less is more because the the mind is going to fill up the space. 
Our mind fills up. This, it's just like listening to radio. You see the house that Jack Benny lived in. You see these people, and you your your mind fills in the blanks. Yeah. And it's very much like with Beatle music. They knew that. And it's how can you know the stuff doesn't make sense to me. It's like how can Ringo during Revolution, the very first time when they when Paul, I mean when John says when you talk about destruction, how can Ringo go? And then he goes boom, bump, bump, bump. You know, the very first time he's crashing on the cymbal, then the yeah. rest of the times he's going he's going to that that beat. Why is that? It's like most people would have stopped and said, no, 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 don't do that. But the Beatles said, it's okay. It's weird. It doesn't make any sense. But it's Ringo, you know. And, uh, but that, that if, permeates if we, everything about them, though, doesn't it? They it, never do the same thing twice. Exactly. They, you know, they're always exactly. moving on. Yeah, you know, but 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 what was interesting too to watching you know George working out his parts as a guitar player and 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 to a lesser extent um, John. I mean George was he had an idea in his mind for a lot of these songs and um, he was going to work them out like he works out the parts of um, on Don't Let Me Down with Billy Preston hmm. and um, he had something in mind or he had a solo very much in mind for Dig a Pony. And as as an aside, we need to talk about Billy Preston. I, I was going to say, to him yeah. as a musician, yeah. you know, something, I mean, and if anybody hasn't seen that, go go back on YouTube and look for um, Nat King Cole and Billy Preston. Yeah, he's about 10 look years the, old. He's about 10 years old and he's playing the Hammond organ and switching back and singing with with uh, Nat King Cole and killing it. Yes. And killing and killing and killing it. I mean honestly we talk about them getting back and where where can they go but nowhere. But all of a sudden Billy Preston shows up and he 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 gives them a glimmer of hope. There is somewhere they can go. They can put soul into their music. Because yeah. Billy Preston is yeah. such was such a soul an incredible player. I mean I mean just an incredible singer, an incredible player. He was he knew the gravity of the situation. He knew that like you know like that he could play circles around all of them, but 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 that didn't matter because Billy Preston knew that feel and the fact that he's he's in a room with geniuses is more important than anything, and he's going to give it all he's got. He's going to lay low in the right places. He's going to shine in these places, and he is the perfect musician. I don't think Nicky Hopkins could have done it. I mean, Billy Preston brought soul to that band. I mean, when you think about, like, that's probably the one thing the Beatles couldn't do. They could do 20s, uh, like music like Honey Pie. They could do folk music. They could do Helter Skelter. The one thing they couldn't do is um, Booker T and the MGs. Well, they couldn't be black, you know. They couldn't and, be black. I mean, you know, and, the 12 bar original. 12 right. bar original is exactly. But but the Billy Presence of the world, if Billy Preston would have been around for 12 bar original, I guarantee you it would have been a lot more like Green Onions. Green yeah. onions than it would have been like you know. Well, so all Billy of a Preston, sudden, all of a sudden, the Beatles have a kind of gospel feel going. Yeah, on, you know, right? It, yeah, and I, it doesn't it work beautifully for Let It Be. Oh yeah, but isn't that something what you just said before that you know he knows that as a musician technically he could run rings around them, and yet in these few years since he saw them in Hamburg, they've earned his respect to that point where even though, you know. 
technically he could do that, he's still looking up to them, uh, like you said, as like these geniuses in the room that he's observing. That's yeah. something, you know, what an achievement on their part, right, as a collective to do that. Well, I'm sure that Billy Preston throughout the years that like, you know, all through Rubber Soul and Revolver and, and, and everything, you know, being a friend of theirs, I'm sure that he kept abreast of every little thing they did, as everybody did in the music business. I mean, when the Beatles did something, it was it was groundbreaking. And um, everybody, at least anybody with half of a mind you know, listened and was like, okay, uh, I understand they're coming out with a new album next month. I can't wait to hear it. I mean, just imagine you're Billy Preston and, you know, you're you're playing with whoever. You're playing with Ray Charles or you're playing, you know, with, with you know, Little Richard or something like that. Just imagine what it would be like to all of a sudden hear I Am The Walrus and just go, holy shit, what am I listening to? Or listening to like Strawberry Fields. Now, Strawberry, the Beatles may not have had soul in the classical sense, but oh my God, how soulful is um, Strawberry Fields? Yeah. I mean, how soulful is In My Life? Right. I mean, oh, absolutely. While my guitar gently weeps. Very soulful, yeah. yeah. Or like uh, Here, There, and Everywhere. Across the universe. Across the universe. I mean, so many of them.
rehearsing is rehearsing in a rehearsal space you know because you don't get any love from the room you know there 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 is a lot to be said for like that's why i mentioned earlier about going back to the cavern because you got those walls that that are that are bouncing the sound back and that is very very inspiring to be sitting next to a fender amplifier just turned up on four and playing. I can't think of anything more uninspiring as a guitar player than what they did. You know, and yes, you can hear yourself just fine, but I mean, the tone, there's no, where it's like drinking wine that has no flavor. It's like wine that, that tastes like water. Where's the, where's the attitude? Where's the vibe? You know, and they were all about vibe and attitude. Like, like every guitar tone, previously had so much vibe and attitude and and this one doesn't right and 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 so and so they're swimming they're constantly swimming upstream and that's the why the sad part comes in for me and you're hearing my dog lucy sneezing behind (laughs) lucy Ah. lucy yeah yeah lucy in the sky with diamond is 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 sneezing behind me the clearly cathartic Yoko jam session. Yes. Have you ever been involved in something like that where there's been like a really awkward atmosphere, ten- tensions, and people just getting it all out musically like that together? Very much so. You know something, Richard? It's the other side of the coin to taking the piss out of your music. They did that a lot. They, they, they made fun of themselves a lot in this and yeah. I love how Paul makes fun of John's songs John makes fun of Paul's songs George you know it, it's like anything goes because they don't you you just watch it and you just go oh my god these guys do not take themselves too seriously and what a breath of fresh air this is you're seeing you're not seeing i'm a diva you know it's like that the the john goes you know we're stars you know the yelling (laughs) to glenn johns you know it's like you know it's like yeah he's taking the piss out of it but (laughs) it's the same thing with that yoko jam it's like you see paul hanging from the from the uh, the rafters and you see them you see them going nuts it's like they have to, they're like kids on a playground and they have all this energy and they have to get it out. And um, and yeah, I've been in those situations. It is a musical shouting match or a musical discussion, but it's not done with words. It's mm-hmm. done with, it's done with turning up my amplifier because I'm being bad and I'm doing something I shouldn't do. George isn't here, so I have to be two guitar players now, and I'm going to just crank up my guitar to where my, my, my lowly Fender amplifier starts to. By the way, Fender, if you're listening, I still want free stuff. <laughs> just so you know. But, um, 
but but you know he turns up his guitar and it's just you hear this just this grimy slimy just grungy guitar tone and i just go yes yes and 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 yeah you know yoko's yodeling aside it's i'm i'm thinking okay they if they would have been facing the right direction and they would have like been a decent distance from their amplifiers and and had them face you know down so the amplifiers do what they're supposed to do and they're supposed to go they're supposed to go underneath you you know right. you know like like there's nothing worse than having a fender amplifier pointed at your head you know those fender amps they have stands on them so you can put them in a piggyback position which i don't know who on god's earth would want to do but if they were at the cavern and the sound was going you know through their legs and bouncing off the back walls they would have been inspired to play your blues and they would have been inspired to hey paul would have gotten on the guitar and probably would have started playing helter skelter and ringo would have taken those tea towels off and then then it would have been exactly (laughs) exactly what they did during that time when when george walked out yeah that's that's the moment i I love in the jam session i mean i haven't seen ringo doing that two-fisted drumming since like well, six, December '63 in Sweden, or you're gonna uh, have eight, some you know, fun tonight. Yeah, have exactly. Washington. Tonight. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. Everybody that's listening to this obviously is a Beatle fan, but if you're not a Beatle fan, just know the gift we've been given. Oh. And um, you know, there's this. I, I fell down this rabbit hole on YouTube, and um, we can kind of sum it up with this. Um, I, there's there's people that they they actually they're younger people and they do first listens, and you know to like like Sergeant Pepper's and they're just they they and and normally I would ignore stuff like that. It's like who wants to hear like who wants to hear what a twenty three year old has to say about listening to Sergeant Pepper's for the first time? But I I found that I'm watching this and I'm thinking this is really moving. I, this is actually making me very emotional because. How many times in my past do I think, oh my God, I would love to hear Sgt. Pepper's again for the first time, or I'd love to hear the White Album for the first time and not knowing what, you know, what Bungalow Bill's going to be like and looking at these titles and thinking, while my guitar gently weeps, what is that going to be like? And then just stopping after the song and going, oh my God, or like happiness is a warm gun. I would love to hear happiness is a warm gun for the first time. So I'm watching this and I'm, and I'm watching like their reactions and, you know, and, and they're all like blown away by it. But then when this, this, this girl got to the white album, she's listening to it and she's listening to the, she did it in two parts and she did the, 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 the second uh, album as a second part. And I'm thinking, and I'm watching it, and I'm thinking to myself, how can somebody at that age even comprehend the White Album? When you think about it, we grew up by listening to the radio where we would hear, we would hear um, "Love Is Blue" as a guitar hit, and we, yeah. we, I mean, can you believe that the Beatles and "Hello Dolly" were on the, you know, on yeah. the radio at the same time at the yeah. very beginning? Yeah. Or we, we would hear classical gas. Yeah. We'd hear instrumentals. We would hear Purple Haze. We would hear um, Jefferson Airplane, you know. So we grew up with this incredible palette of music. Totally eclectic, yeah. Nobody in, nobody in their right mind in this day and age can understand that. And it's like, but the Beatles, like, were the kings of it. You know, you put on the White Album, and how can you go from, um, you know, you could go from, like, uh, Birthday... You know, to like honey pie, 
you know, yeah. to revolution number nine to now it's time to say yeah. good. You know, I mean, how do you go through all these emotions and with 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 the mindset of 2022 and being every being, you know, with with Adele and, and Taylor Swift and everything being so narrow, they they can't understand how it is to be from that era and to just have an album of such eclectic tastes and, 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 and have a song like, you know, have an album be like this. It just, it, it can't be explained. By the way, you know, you said that let it be being one of your least favorite Beatles albums. It could have been a much better album. You know, the, the rough edges could have been knocked out. You know, they didn't need to bring Spectre in really. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard. Have you heard the Glyn Johns mixes? Which are yeah, even, I have it, and they're mm-hmm. even rougher. And I know Glyn said to me that you know he much preferred his mixes. Well, of course, but I personally yeah. think, having heard you know what we hear in Get Back, they had the tracks there to make actually a pretty good, strong album. Uh, even things like Dig It, we should have had more of Dig It. Yeah. You know, instead of these little rough bits and cuts, and gives it that yeah. scrappy feel. Well, let me ask you this, okay, on that, let, let me bounce this back to you, Richard. So, um, obviously, I mean, we're looking at the songs, we're looking at classics like Let It Be, The Long and Winding Road, Get Back. I mean, obviously, there are songs on there that, that are Beatles classics, but let's say that it was what you're saying. Now, how does that figure into the Beatles constantly upping themselves? Now, how do you go from how do you go from the White Album and having Mother Nature's Son and 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 Blackbird and and these type of songs? And how do you go from that all that that sonic you know that sonic buffet of wonderfulness to I dig a pony with the same guitar sound and exactly as um, um, one after nine oh nine, which is the same as I've got a feeling, you know. So, I mean, how how do you reconcile that as as a fan of the era? Yes, the songs are great, and in retrospect, we know that they're classics. But 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 climbing the tree of of the the Beatles being gods and saying that everything they're going to be doing is going to top the thing they did previously so much. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, with the White Album, you and I will agree they've climbed Everest. Maybe they've actually already taken the rocket to the moon with that one. Where yes. do you go after that? And that's why, again... I'm feeling at ease with when their story ends as a group because, yeah, it would have been nice to have some more albums and have the Beatles doing All Things Must Pass. But the fact is that what we're saying is it's really the perfect story. They end at their peak, really. Yes, absolutely. My feeling was exactly the same, Richard. I'm watching this, and at the end, and when I thought about it, I just came back to saying everything happened as it should. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't overstay their welcome. They could have, I mean, yeah, we know that like, boy, we could have taken Maybe I'm Amazed and Working Class Hero and My Sweet Lord and It Don't Come Easy and we could have made an incredible Beatles album. Yeah. Um, but, but once again, everything happened the way it should have. Absolutely. And 
And it's hard to say that. I mean, it's hard to say that, you know, because when you watch, you know, you, you look at Brian Wilson and you, you go, OK, Pet Sounds, his peak and then him chasing Smile for years mm. and, and, and never being able to get there. But you look at it, you go, well, maybe it happened the way it's supposed to happen. Maybe yeah. this is the way life is supposed to work. You know, maybe Orson Welles was supposed to peak at Citizen Kane. Yeah. He had moments of brilliance, yes. touch of evil. Yeah. You know, he had he had moments of brilliance and he was still Orson Welles and, and well-respected, but maybe things happen the way they're supposed to happen. Yeah. And, and I'm glad the Beatles never got back together again because... They they obviously proved that they did everything they needed to do, and they did it in such such a short time span. When you think about, you know, the short the short amount of time span between "I Want to Hold Your Hand" and "Strawberry Fields Forever," oh my God, that is insane! How yeah. how little of time went between those two songs? So they did it all, and they did it all at lightning speed. They lived. Three lives in the time, five lives in the time of one. They and really did. And they'd made that a huge transition, right? When they quit the road and quit the Beatlemania years and became a studio band and yeah. still and, and led the field again, right? They, so they made that amazing leap and transition. They couldn't do that again. I mean, you yes. couldn't, you know, there was nowhere to transition to as a group after this. And see, ultimately, Richard, that's the real, the real capper to this story is you can't go home. You really right. can't go back home. I mean, look at it. Look at it. Exactly everything we're talking about. Look at Hard Day's Night and Help as movies. Hard Day's Night, everybody goes, it's a classic. Yeah. Help, it's in color. It's got a script. But they already did the classic movie. Yeah. Where else are they going to go? They're not actors. Right. You know, and, and they they did a pretty good job, uh, all in all. You know, uh, I mean, like George does some great stuff and Ringo does some great stuff in, in Help. Um, but um, but so, you know, everything there's there, you know, it's like turn, turn, turn. There is a season. There's a time for everything. Mm. And I feel like that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing that. I mean, they couldn't go home with us with help. They couldn't do it, and they and they they couldn't go back. I mean, ultimately, when you're watching them playing those oldies, you're you're watching them, and they're they're at Twickenham or they're at um, Abbey Road playing those oldies. Listen to the sound of those. Listen to them compared to the oldies. Them playing those oldies years back at the Cavern. I mean, listen to how uninspiring they are. Listen to how how they're going. They're they're they're. Re they're enjoying it because they're they're reliving their past. But what they're not reliving is the energy of the past. I mean, they're not standing up and they're not going, "Yes, I'm cranking up my guitar," or "I got this new I got this new amplifier and I can't wait to play, I can't wait to play this song." You know, a soldier, you know, soldier of love. I can't wait to play soldier of love. It's perfect for me. Or you can't wait to hear Paul sing, you know, "Long Tall Sally." You know. They're 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 there, but they're they're going through the motions because they're they're looking at by playing those oldies. They're looking at a photo album, yeah. is what they're doing. They're looking at oh, look at how cute we used to be. Remember that time when we went to Disneyland when you were fifteen? That's what they're doing there. 
They're not, they're not really, I mean, they're not, they're not doing, they're not going to Disneyland. They're looking at pictures of them going to Disneyland from years ago. No, I mean, they instinctively knew what you're saying, right? And that's why... I think they did. I mean, who knows? Obviously, if John had lived, I think there would have been some get-togethers. Fair enough. But there would have never been full-time again. And what, you know, the result is, I think that sealed their legend because they left the crowd baying for more, right? They left people screaming for more. If they'd have come back and just kept doing encores, the shouting's going (laughs) to keep diminishing, you know, yeah. um, and, and so it is. It's the perfect story. And we both know lots and lots of artists with um, having a, a downward arc yep. and, and just saying, um, you know something, I know you really want to work, but maybe it's time you, you know, you think about maybe, you know, painting. Yeah, yes. you know, you know yeah. look at what look at Joni Mitchell. <laughs> you know, I mean, you no, know, I mean, there's other ways to express yourself other than getting up and you know and 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 playing songs that you did 40 years ago or something like that. And uh, you know, I mean, I get it if 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 you're if you're really one of those people who who loves who has to have the adoration and the love of fans. Personally, I never was. Mm. You know, that's why I never was like a you know like. Other than heart, I was never in a touring band because to me that wasn't important to be right. that guy. You know, like like you know, I'm going to play this solo. Love me. That was the last thing on my mind. Right. You know. Right. My whole life. You know, yeah. I wanted to create music, and 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 watch how music really affected people. I wanted to write a string section and watch the melancholy in somebody's face. To me, that was the reward. Um, and, and the Beatles knew that too. And, and so life happened as it was supposed to. And we can only speculate as to if John would have lived. I would have loved John to have, like I said, John and Paul to be old men sitting back together and just, and, and being able to get past the Beatles, yeah. you know, cause John never, never really, he was just getting to the part where in his life where he could have been getting past the Beatles. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it was taken from him. And George to a certain point too. I mean, yeah. Paul has the luxury of having all this this age and John and Ringo too, this wisdom that comes with it, to be able to put things in perspective. Now Paul obviously is the you know, he's the architect of keeping the Beatles legend alive yeah. and he's doing an amazing job of it and God bless him because I, you know, I'm thrilled that everything comes out that you know, like this this new release of um you know the the blu-ray of um hard day's night yeah you know and uh, uh, thank god that's coming out because you know we need this we need this in this day and age with everything being so auto-tuned and bland and all this we need giles martin's mixes and we need this stuff but life happens as it's supposed to Well, get out of that kitchen and jack those pots and pans. 
by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow.
shit back. Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. <laughs>